Well, you know, one thing you can learn from history, sometimes you never know what to expect. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. If you have a question of any kind that you want to ask me, anything that relates to The Line of Fire broadcast, any subject matter that we've talked about, any areas of expertise I have, we will open the phones. We will take some calls today as well. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, boy, a ton of stuff Going on still in Israel, we gave an update, kind of an after-radio update yesterday, but continue to pray that the good news of Jesus the Messiah will go forth in Israel, in Hebrew, on TV, that this will happen, that the door will remain open, and that the controversy surrounding this new channel called Shalana, which means ours, that rather than driving people away from Yeshua, it will drive people to Yeshua. All right. <clears throat> when, when we look back at the start of 2020, were any of us thinking that, say, a few months down the line, we'd be where we are right now? Were, were any of us imagining that we'd be in a situation, say, where, where sports would be canceled where seasons would be lost, where the Olympics would be postponed, or, or closer to home, where school would be canceled, where graduation services would be done online, where tens of millions of people would suddenly be out of work, where businesses would be closing and some not able to open up again, where there'd be a battle as to whether church gatherings could go on and there'd be something called social distancing. What Here, what was social distancing? How many of us heard that phrase before? That we'd be wearing masks in public and having hand sanitizer around all the time. Was, was anyone seeing that coming? And for those that were looking at the elections and all of that, I mean, now you're talking about, could you have a real vote? The physical voter is going to be a, a virtual vote where you, you send in your ballots. It's not going to be fair or right. And, and then the economy, one of President Trump's strongest points, now the, the economy is going to need a major rebuild. And what's going to happen between now and the elections? Who saw any of this coming? All right. Now, sometimes God does give prophetic insight. Sometimes he does prepare us. And for certain larger societal things, we, sh we should have spiritual insight. But my point is, a lot of times things happen that are very unexpected. And, and friends, that encourages me because that's telling me that despite the negative direction of so much of our culture, despite the bad decisions that are being made by, by so many in higher places, despite so many negative trends in, in media and in Hollywood and, and on and on and on that suddenly things could change and they could change for the good. And, and suddenly people are talking about God and crying out to God and looking for God. And, and the Christian, they mock one day, they're calling for prayer the next day. These things could happen. 
Uh, I wrote a couple of books a few years back, one called Outlasting the Gay Revolution, another called Saving a Sick America. And both of them end it with messages of hope, covered a lot of pretty intense stuff in the books and heavy data and information. But I, I, I end it to be sure each book with hope, with encouragement, and with stories of the past, stories of change, biblical stories, historical uh, uh, things that, that would talk about change coming unexpectedly. And a couple days ago, I was looking at some things and, and found some of the data again that I'd, I'd forgotten. Most of it I carry in my head, the major things, but, but some that I had forgotten. So I, I want to bring this to your attention, just to tell you that a lot of things predicted, people looking forward to, and, and it goes very differently. I'm not talking about 3,000 years ago. I'm talking about more recent years and more recent decades. Hey, look, right up until election night, even the beginning of election night, even partway through election night, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion Hillary Clinton would be president, 2016. And I remember watching, watching the news and, and seeing the shock. I remember watching, I was switching you know, some different networks just to see how things were being covered in the reactions. And, and the Fox commentators, who you would have thought would have been largely pro-Trump, they were like, whoa, could, could, it, could it be? <laughs> this, is, this is as of election night. You got all the pundits and everybody's got it all figured out. And they were wrong. All the predictions and the detailed and the demographics, and they were wrong. Doesn't mean Trump's a good president or bad president. I'm just saying that it was unexpected. Or if you go back before he ran, if... if or, or at the beginning of the, the campaign, the primaries, there's this famous segment on, on Bill Maher, politically incorrect in whatever real time, whatever the name of the show is. And, and he's asking a panel there, uh, ask Ann Coulter, you know, who's, who's the best Republican candidate or the most likely candidate for president? She said, Donald Trump. And the whole place howls with laughter. It's, it was so completely ridiculous. Here it is. So, so check this out. This is from my book, Saving a Sick America. And uh, I, how many of you lived through the 60s? You know the saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Counterculture, revolution, rebellion, right? Generation gap, make love, not war. Peace, man. The, it, it was a very tumultuous season. I got caught up in it, the whole drug, rock scene before God saved me in 71. All right, so check this out, all right? This is from my book, Saving a Sick America. Pollsters in the early 1960s predicted that the young generation would be a joy to work with, a generation that really honored authority. Did you get that? Yeah, I mean, I read some of the descriptions like, are you kidding me? So let me read this again. Pollsters in the early 1960s predicted that the young generation would be a joy to work with a generation that really honored authorities. This is the beginning of the 60s, the decade of the 60s, the counterculture revolution, the shaking 60s, the tumultuous 60s. Pollsters had it exactly wrong. They had no clue that a massive counterculture revolution was about to rise, a nation-shaking revolution led almost entirely by young people. And these same pollsters never could have imagined that in the midst of this rebellious movement, 
a sweeping religious revival known as the Jesus Revolution would arise as, well, who saw it coming? I've often referenced this, April 8th, 1966, again in my book, Saving a Sick America. April 8th, 1966, Time Magazine featured a star cover for the first time without a picture of any kind. Every cover always had a picture. This had none. It simply asked this question in bold text, is God dead? April 8th, 1966. Five years later, June 21st, 1971. Time cover story featured a picture of a hippie like Jesus with the caption, The Jesus Revolution. Uh, Let's just step back and think about that, friends. Five years is not that long a period of time. Five years, you're you're talking about the the term of a president plus a year. You're, You're talking about you know, your kid going from first grade to fifth grade or, or ninth grade to 12th grade, then starting college. I mean, it's a lot happens. You've been married 20 years. Now you've been married 24 years. I mean, it's 25 years. It's, it's not a tremendously long period of time to go from is God dead to the Jesus revolution. So who knows where America's about to turn? Who knows what God is going to do through the shaking with this virus? Who knows what God's going to do with shaking the church? Who knows? Think of this. Think of this angle. Who knows what the effect of decades of prayer might be? Remember, there have been people crying out and seeking the face of God, fasting, looking to the Lord. Thousands of people going on 40-day fasts people praying around the clock for years with different prayer groups. God has been hearing the prayers and moving in certain ways, but in another way, as we see in in, in the book of Revelation, that the the prayers of the saints go up like incense before God. That's how it's pictured in Revelation, that, that you could look at this as a cumulative effect. In other words, that as things build and build and build and build, then the answer comes. Here, th- think, think of it like this. Let's, let's come at it from a different angle, all right? Think of it like this. Let's say that you were praying for a car to be built, right? You need a car. You desperately need a car. Praying for a new car, all right? And the factory that makes this particular car is out of all the parts. So you, now this is a silly illustration, but I'm using it to make a point. So you pray that God will send one part. Okay, they need this part. It's made here. Lord, would you send that part to the factory? Now you find out, okay, another part's made here. Well, for here, let's not even make it prayer. You're, you're trying to put something together, and the parts are in 20 different places. So you find out, okay, you research, get this one, you get that order, that's going to arrive in a month. Okay, they research this. Okay, that you can get in a week. Great. Now you research, okay. So it takes a period of time for everything to be assembled, and, and now you can get everything at one, now you can make it, right? Okay, very weak illustration. But the point I'm making is if you're praying for a national awakening or a national turning, it doesn't happen overnight, God's preparing this and preparing this and preparing this. In other words, every prayer is having a response. It's just going to build in a certain way and get to a certain point. And then from there, the, the big answer comes. So as, as you are praying 
for awakening, praying for God to move, praying for cultural change. It might be building, building, building. Or just look at it like swinging a, a, swing a tree with a, a swing an axe at a tree, all right? And you swing, and you swing, and you swing, and you swing. Each blow is making a difference. Each blow is making a difference. But the tree will suddenly fall. Maybe that's what's going to happen in terms of cultural change, that suddenly, overnight, there's going to be a shift, and eyes will be open, and an awakening will come. Hey, stranger, odder things have happened over the years. 866-34-TRUTH. Phone lines will be open when we come back. of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Hey, uh, when you have a moment, can I encourage you to visit my website, sdrbrown.org, or go to stream.org. And read my latest article. It is a fervent appeal to Christians who love Israel to please, please not oppose the preaching of the gospel to the Jewish people. Dear Christian supporters of Israel, please do not become enemies of the gospel. You say, well, how, how would that happen? How could that ever happen? Well, many times when Christians become aware of the horrible history of anti-Semitism in the church— and how Jews were persecuted in Jesus' name. Jews were offered baptism or death in Jesus' name. Jews were driven out of countries if they weren't baptized. Uh, the, the Holocaust could only have taken place in a, in a Christian tradition in Europe that for years had cultivated anti-Semitism. So the, the fact of the matter is that uh, many Christians become aware of this. Many, by reading my book, actually, their hands are stained with blood. And they become burdened and they want to undo that horrible history and they want to show unconditional, genuine love to the Jewish people and say, hey, true Christians love the Jewish people. They don't hate the Jewish people. True Christians will, will stand with the people of Israel, not, not stand against them. Uh, that they, they, they embrace that, but then they go to the other extreme, which is, well, we can't share the gospel because that's what gets them so upset. Whereas if, if Yeshua did not die for the Jewish people, he didn't die for anybody. If Jewish people could be saved without the cross, then the cross is another mockery. And sadly, as, as, as Shalanu, as God TV, is, is bringing the message of Yeshua in Hebrew to Jewish people in the land, produced primarily by Jewish believers in the land, sharing their stories, their testimony, ministering in a sensitive way, that there are Christians who support Israel saying, we want to stop this. What? What? What is more important than someone coming into right relationship with God through Jesus, the Messiah? It's six. Three, four, truth. Uh, let's go to Kevin in Kansas. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, I've been spending a little bit of time looking at uh, slavery in the Old Testament. I want to mm-hmm. get your thoughts on it. Um, Christian sources, in my view, seem to want to kind of let God off the hook and treat slavery in Israel as 
little more than indentured servitude. Atheist sources want to make it synonymous with the American slave trade, and scholarly sources lean toward agreeing with the atheist worldview, but say it's not quite nuanced enough, but that the the treatment of slaves in Israel wasn't all that dissimilar than other ancient kingdoms. And I was wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, well, I would say you almost nailed the description there, except to say that scholarly sources don't see that big of a difference between slavery in Israel and the African slave trade, because slavery in the ancient world was not primarily like the African slave trade. In, in other words, yeah, so, so where, I, where I would put things is I would say that you have the two extremes on the either side, right? The Christian, the Christian extreme trying to say, hey, it's not that bad, and it was, like you said, just kind of indentured servanthood and, and, and not much beyond that. Now, in some cases, in the best case scenarios, it was, but, but in others, it's, it's certainly beyond that, especially in one passage in Leviticus that speaks of obtaining slaves from other nations. That's the really difficult one. That's the most difficult of the, of the various passages. Uh, but there were humanitarian things built in that were unique. I mean, the ancient world did not have a seven-day work week. It did not have a seventh-day Sabbath. It, it, did, it did not have the ability for a slave to go free as easily as in ancient Israel. So, but the fact is that, that these were things that were not God's eternal best, just like divorce is not God's eternal best, but was given because of the hardness of people's hearts. Like polygamy was not God's eternal best, but was permitted as, as something functional in the ancient world. So when I've discussed slavery, I had one academic discussion with, with an Old Testament Semitic scholar, and we didn't have a debate. He used to be a believer and is, is now an atheist, but we didn't have a debate. We, we were in substantial harmony that I look at it as something that was necessary in the ancient world, the system being what it was. I, I look at it also that it was something where God wanted to make clear that there were humanitarian and compassionate rules. In fact, a, a year or two ago when I was reading through Exodus, it struck me that immediately after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that the first major laws given, beginning in chapter 21, are laws having to do with slavery. You think, what? How harsh is that? I thought, it's probably the opposite. God's saying, it's not going to be the way it was in Egypt. What you experienced in Egypt for hundreds of years, that's not the way it's going to be with you. So that's the immediate contrast. Not what's done in ancient Babylonia, not what's done in ancient Samaria, but what was done in Egypt to the people of Israel, God's saying, it's not going to be like that for you. It's going to be different, and there's going to be compassion, and there's going to be uh, a humanitarian element to it, but it's certainly not God's ideal for all time. Uh, the, the Sinai Covenant was only for a period of, of time, and it revealed Israel's sin and other things. And then ultimately, the goal that we see through the Hebrew Bible is liberation. In other words, slavery in and of itself is never praised. You look at the end of Proverbs 31, a, a godly woman, she is praised, even though you had certain customs and, and laws concerning men and women. Women themselves were praised, right? But something like slavery, we have laws of slavery. Slavery never in itself is praised. Rather, you have the prophetic vision of liberation of slavery, of equality, of everyone serving together. So this was just something part of the ancient world that is now adopted into Israelite law. It's also part of their ancient culture and kind of a necessary way of life, but in a more humanitarian way. 
So we don't have to make a major apologetic for it. What we can say is, one, it was part of the ancient world. Two, Israel's laws tended to be better than the ancient world. Three, the ultimate goal of Scripture is liberation. Four, there is no connection between that, kidnapping people in Africa, and then bringing them here as lifelong slaves as part of your property. No connection between the two at all. Um, Do you know of any additional sources I can maybe reference that will be fair on the topic? Yes. Um, If you want to get into a, a nice... Uh, study. Uh, it looks like you're the type of person, just by what you said here, that you would enjoy a study like this. Um, hang on. It is William Webster, and I'm just grabbing the title for you. Oh, come on. Uh, it is Slate. All right, hang on. Do I have the last name wrong of Webster? If, if not, if you keep listening during a, a break, I'll, I'll get it for you. Slaves, uh, okay, I, I read it. Uh, I'll, I'll get it for you. And, and uh, next segment, I'll, I'll mention it rather than be rude to everybody else that's listening and waiting. But there's a great comparative study with how the Bible treats slavery, how the Bible treats women, how the Bible treats sexual practices, including homosexual practice, to say, okay, are these all eternal? Is one just for one time, one for another? Uh, there's, a, there's another book by um, another scholar that's, that's written on a simpler level, but this one it will really get you in depth. So I, I apologize for um, not remembering on a, off the top of my head. I'll find it for you and uh, during the next break, and then I'll bring it up. All right? So thanks for your questions, and I think this is exactly what you'll need to dig in and to do a comparative exegetical study, okay? Thank you, sir. You are very welcome. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Neil in Wisconsin. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. God bless you today. Um, the, uh, prepare for the unexpected. I have a praise report for you. Something I'm all ears, man. I'm all ears. <laughs> Something happened in our family last night um, that I, I, I'm trying to struggle to uh, describe it to you, but I must. Um, my son's mother, she began, she began, she posted three things she is grateful for and sent it out to the entire family. Mm-hmm. And she encouraged everybody, post three things you are grateful for. And, you know, some people, worldly things. And I'm telling you, Dr. Brown, all of a sudden, I don't have a smartphone. She told me this later. All of a sudden, our family members, the nieces, the young ones, the older ones, they began to post things that were more Christologic, more godly. It was mm. almost like a personal family. Uh, I'm not trying not to cry now. Mm. A personal family revival began to happen. And then I don't have a smartphone, so she shared it with me later. The whole chain. And I read it over and over again, and you could see our small family begin to draw closer in God. Mm. We were grateful for things, the food we put in our mouths, the love we share for each other, our prayers, and everything like that. And she said to me, Neely, well, that's what they call me, Neely. Uh-huh. I'm like you, a Jew who follows Jesus. And, uh, and uh, she encouraged me this morning. She said, just put it on an email, and I'll post it up. And this morning, after my morning devotionals, 
I posted the three things I was so grateful for. I actually posted four. I broke the rules. It was a family revival. And this morning when I woke up, I can't find the human words to describe it to you, but I feel over the nation something cracked open this morning. Yeah, you know, you know, Neil, it's it's interesting, um, and I'm jumping in just because I have a break. Yeah, the perfect illustration here, just in a small family level, but of something you didn't intend to put in a certain spiritual way, but suddenly it awakens something in people's hearts. And I think Neil, that gives you kind of a hope. That's what you sense in your own life. You look at the nation, thought something could shift. Things could shift overnight. Here's a small, um, uh, a micro illustration. Think of what it happens on a macro level. Thanks for the call, Neil. Hey, the title of the book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals by William J. Webb, W-E-B-B. Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals Exploring the Hermeneutics of Cultural Analysis. God of light, hear our cry. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. You know, one one thing that we like to do on this broadcast is encourage you, not with empty words, not with shallow words, not with human hope, but with divine hope, with divine reality. And for me, the simple fact that Jesus rose from the dead is all I need to know. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. Therefore, in him, the future is bright. That's all I need to know. Oh, there are a million other questions, issues we have to deal with in this life. But I mean, a fundamental grounding. Put another way, if you know who the real God is and that you're in right relationship with him, that's everything. That is everything. And our God often does unexpected things out of the blue and suddenly. From his perspective, it's been moving along according to a plan. From ours, it's boom, sudden, out of the blue. 866-34-TRUTH. Phone lines are open. Okay, a couple things that I shared in my book, Saving a Sick America. Early 1800s, revival historian James Edwin Orr reported that Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall wrote to Bishop Madison of Virginia, early 1800s, quote, the church is too far gone ever to be redeemed. That's how it looked. And then Second Great Awakening swept that away. Here, how about earlier? Right, 1720s, in the days of the colonies, which were far more godly and Christian, even by force in certain ways, than than anything we've known in our history. Okay? So, I mean, some of it was genuine, heartfelt Christianity, some was the culture that forced it, but a very different world than we're living in today. But still same people, same simple human beings. Reverend Samuel Blair, looking back on this, said, said this, religion lay as it were dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. And, and what happens next? Great awakening. Great awakening. So what he's talking about, religion, meaning the Christian faith, hardly expired its, its last breath. Um, there is a, a professor who made a, a comment uh, May 6, 2016. Harvard Law Professor Mark Tushnet declared that, quote, the culture wars are over, 
they lost, meaning us, we won. And he recommended that the victors, what he called the progressive side, take a, quote, hard line against the losers and the culture wars, by which he meant us. I wrote a response and said, perhaps, sir, your view of history is short-sighted. Perhaps there'll be a healthy pushback against some of these purported advances. And perhaps this professor underestimated the, the vibrancy of the New Testament faith. Here, worldwide, Christian faith on the rise, not decline. Washington Post 2015 said over the past 100 years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to its nearly 500 million today. One out of four Christians in the world presently is an African, and the Pew Research Center estimates that will grow to 40% in 2030. Who saw that coming 100 years ago? There's a great quote from David Livingston saying, in the future there'll be missionaries that, that, that will see thousands of Africans saved in a single day. He said, may they not forget us who labored with tears for years and didn't see a single convert. And, and, and then, listen to this, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton said this, at least five times the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. We're talking about people dying. We don't wish evil on those who are ideological enemies. We're talking about cultural shifts, unexpected things. It's too late. It's over. It's dead and buried. Religion, Christian faith is done. Young people have dropped out. Look at what's coming. Next generation, it's over for the Church of America. Well, we shall see. Oh, yeah, there's compromise. There's corruption. There's, there's pollution. There's sin. There's, there needs to be much awakening amidst, but there's also a lot that God's doing in many, many lives. Um, John Zmirak colleague of mine on the stream, stream.org, brilliant writer and thinker. Uh, he said when he was a student at Yale, his professors uniformly praised communism. And, and, and they made it clear that communism, not capitalism, was the, was, was the key to the world's future success. And they were quite confident that this socialist system was here to stay with its sphere of influence growing by the decade. And who would have imagined, John asked, how dramatically and quickly it collapsed around the globe. And then he said, who would have believed that the principal players, think of this, the principal players who would help topple communism would be a former Hollywood actor, Reagan, a female prime minister in England, the daughter of a lay preacher and a grocer, Thatcher, a shipyard worker who became the head of a Polish trade union, Walensa, and a Polish pope, John Paul II. Who saw that coming? And who would have picked those players? You never know. What's coming? And you never know what God might do. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Skyler in Washington. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Uh, I heard your comments about um, Sola Scriptura before the break a while back, and uh, I'm relatively new to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just wondering, since I heard your comments, is it possible for a uh, new scripture to be written today? And if so, what would the requirements be? Uh, thank you. Yes, thanks Thanks for asking. Uh, sir, it's, it's not possible. That would be a violation of what's written within the Bible itself. You say, well, who is, who is there to say so? Okay, so let, let's try to think this through, all right? When God originally spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how do we know it? How do we know it was real? How do we know it wasn't just some voice? Well, what happened was, the children of Israel were in Egypt, in bondage. 
God delivered them out of Egypt. He took authority over nature. He took authority over the, the land of Egypt. He took authority over the gods of Egypt. And he showed that he alone was the one true God, that the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were real. So he demonstrated to the whole world that he was God, then gave laws, commandments, then raised up prophets, then spoke of the coming of the Messiah, right? So if someone else is now preaching another religion, if someone else is preaching another God, we reject that. He made himself clear as the one and only true God. Then he sends his son into the world, just as he said what happened dying for our sins, rising from the dead, being rejected by his own people, just as the prophecy said. And his son works signs and wonders and miracles to confirm who he really is. And those he sends out continue working those signs, wonders, and miracles, confirming the message. And then they write down these words, the the words of Jesus and, and the words of the first followers, the apostles. Those are written down, and that community recognizes this as Scripture. And then we get to... Uh, to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament written, and that ends with a curse for that book in particular, but it becomes the last book of the New Testament. That ends with a curse if anyone tries to take away from this or add to it. And once the apostles died and that foundational generation was passed, it was understood this is it. There is, there is no more scripture to be written. We are looking forward to the return of Jesus. So, the Holy Spirit can speak things to us, he can lead us, he can guide us, he can work miracles, but the Bible is finished. The Bible has a unique function and is uniquely God's Word, God's Word alone. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. And and again, that was universally understood in the early church, meaning that over the centuries they recognized, okay, we're not adding more Scripture. There has not been a discussion like every century, hey, what do you think of this book? Should we add this one in or is it? Nope. So, Again, the Holy Spirit can speak to you, scholar, meaning you're praying about a job. Should I, should I take this job or this job? And you feel in your heart the Lord saying, take this job. The Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us. You might pray for a sick person, you might be healed. He can work miracles. So the Holy Spirit's still working in the earth, but the Bible is complete. End of subject. And the way the books have now been ordered and put together, the book of Revelation goes last. So look at the end of the book of Revelation. Read the last chapter. And then read that as the last chapter of the Bible. Don't add, don't take away. That's our authority. Now, churches may develop customs. You know, we meet at this time of the day or this day of the week, or we see these. That's, we can develop customs and all that, traditions, but they're not the Bible. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Sure thing. That, and by the way, that's, that's a reason why um, we reject uh, the Book of Mormon and, and the Mormon religion as being a truly Christian religion because it's adding to Scripture, saying, no, no, there, there are no sacred books after that. Hey, Skyler, thank you for calling, and, and keep growing in the Lord, and spend a lot of time reading Scripture, praying, and developing a personal relationship with God. God bless you. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Morgan in Virginia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How you, how's it going? Oh, all good, man. All good. All right, well, my question is, if Adam is our federal head, was Jesus born in Adam? All right. All right. My answer is, is absolutely no, but maybe you could explain better uh, how you mean that so I could answer more fully. Well, I, I'm from a Reformed perspective, so yeah. I, I believe that in Adam we all inherit a sin nature and we're 
totally depraved. But um, if Jesus was born from Mary, then how how is he not born in Adam? Right, right, exactly, because he's the Son of God, not born with an earthly father. If he had an earthly father, he would have been in Adam. That's why he's the new Adam. He's the second Adam. He breaks with that. That's one reason he had to be virgin-born and be called the Son of God. Otherwise, he would have been another son of Adam. So this was God's way okay. of bringing his son into the world. That's why he's called the new Adam or the second Adam. So we die in the first Adam. We live in the second Adam. So it's, it's the right question, but the simple answer is the virgin birth, the incarnation. That's what changes everything. And that's why uh, when you go through the genealogy of, of, of uh, Jesus in Luke 3, Adam is, is a son of God, right? Because it starts with him. And now Jesus is the Son of God, the, the true, ultimate Son of God, makes a new start with him. So thanks for the question, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. You bet. 866-34-TRUTH. Okay. Uh, I'll be going right back to the phones on the other side of the break. Uh, signing all your books when the world stops. Signing those tomorrow. We'll be sending those right out. We just got them in from the publisher yesterday, so thanks for your patience, eager to get those out to you. You can still order the Kindle version. Publishers just kept it at, at, at over two-thirds off. So the book sells for $15.99. You can still get the Kindle version for $4.99. It is so absolutely relevant in the world in which we're living now. When the world stops, words of hope, faith, and wisdom in the midst of crisis, not just this crisis, any crisis. So get online, get the e-version at Amazon when the world stops or get the paperback, or if you've ordered it, it will be on its way to you this week. Right back with your calls. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you so much for joining us on the line of fire. And thank you, all of you who send in comments, questions. We appreciate it. All of you who call, thanks for great questions. Over 12 years now on Daily Talk Radio. Amazing. And your calls make a massive difference. So thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Glenn in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. I appreciate you and your ministry. I've been following you for a long time. Uh, My son is a graduate of uh, Fire School of Ministry, and it changed his life. So thank you for that. Praise God. So glad to hear that. I just wanted to get your thoughts. I don't know if we're aware of um, some of the prophetic voices that have been talking about uh, an outpouring on Pentecost Sunday or thereabouts. No, I I haven't heard that. Um, it'd be wonderful if true, but I haven't heard it. I I know that there have been a number of prophetic words about the virus and things that didn't didn't really pan out, and and others that mm-hmm. did. Um, but I, this much I know, sir is that there is a building hunger among many of God's people, that the disruption to our normal routine 
has caused more people to, to ask serious questions that many pastors I know and then evangelistic ministries, even friends in Israel, are seeing a tremendous increase in, in people going to their websites and, and searching things and even coming to faith. And perhaps uh-huh. uh, with, with Pentecost Sunday that more and more churches will be regathering together. Uh, but no, I, have, I haven't heard anything about that. I always have a, a, a growing expectation. I don't have any specific sense that something's going to happen that Sunday, but that would be glorious and awesome if it did, man. Uh, let it let it be the first yeah. of of uh, day and night outpouring for the next five years because we need it. Yes, yes. Okay, I just didn't know if you were aware of that and wanted to get your thoughts there. Thank you. Yeah, so much. thank. I, I'm so yeah. Sorry, uh, sorry that I, I can't say more specifically. Uh, there's a lot out there. Obviously, I don't hear all of it. And blessings, Glenn, to your son again. Thank you for the call. So, uh, Robbie Zacharias is now with the Lord. Obviously, these behind a grieving family and many, many that will miss his voice. Uh, he tweeted this out. This is his last tweet. The story of the gospel is the story of eternal life. My life is unique and will endure eternally in God's presence. I will never be no more. I'll never be lost because I will be with the one who saves me. Ravi Zacharias, just what, 74 years old, so as I'm 65, that seems so young. Ravi and I never met face-to-face, to my knowledge, and only interacted a couple times. Remember, years back, he was getting ready to do some things in Israel and sent me a note appreciating our work and our apologetics volumes and sending me one of his with a with a handwritten note inscribed. And then, oh, maybe about six, eight weeks ago, I had some interaction with folks in his ministry and I've, I've interacted with individuals over the years. So we, we know each other in that respect. So uh, otherwise, my knowing Ravi Zacharias is the same as, as all of you in that sense, appreciating him from a distance. So he's obviously brilliant. The fact that he's Indian means he, he has a perspective, not just the perspective of the West, which makes a big difference in terms of understanding of things and how you see the world. Uh, but what was, to me, so special about him was he was such a statesman. There was such a, a dignity about him. You know, if you want to send someone, hey, check out this website. Here's, here's a campus event or, and someone's asking a question. Or here's a de- debate setting, and you know you want someone that's going to be like a prince in answering that. That'd be Ravi. Thankfully, he has a whole ministry with with fine people working in different nations, and, and thankfully he uh, he has so much of his material out. You can only imagine in the days ahead how many more people will be going there. So while there'll be a great hole, especially for his family and those closest to him, we we pray that his work will only grow and increase and that people behind him will be raised up to go beyond him. May it be so for the glory of the Lord, and may his grace and comfort be with his wife and family. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go with that to Dallas. Reggie, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Hey. Hello, Dr. Um I had a question about uh, Jewish marriage and during the Second Temple to uh, mm-hmm. Gentiles. I'm actually writing a book about uh, about a character that gets married to a Jewish person, and I'm like, you know, I was thinking, like, is that even like, is that even possible? Uh, according uh, according to history, King Herod married 
Mariame, but I was thinking about something like you know, but he was he was he was a gentile by all accord. It's, was that biblical? I mean, no, King Herod, the, the Idumeans were forcibly converted, so so King Herod would have been a convert. He would not oh. have been a gentile. Yeah, that's that's horrible. <laughs> I didn't know that. Like, uh, um, was was it because the, the Jewish the Jewish people did that during like um, during during, uh, I think, the Hasmoneans? Yeah, I mean, basically, that's the time period where these things uh, take place. Uh, but um, that, but Herod was not looked at, he was looked at with hostile eyes rather than with favorable eyes as, as an insider. That was also part of, part of who he was, right? But yeah, he would have, um, again, he would have come from a forced conversion or a uh, uh, coerced conversion in terms of his ancestry. That's, inter- yeah, that's interesting because, like that, that would have meant that his marriage to Mariame would have been all right, even in, in the Jewish like town, uh, Jewish Jewish eyes. Then, right, uh, and that, I mean, don't don't forget, don't forget that um, that in point of fact people did intermarry. You know what I'm saying? You, st- you always had sinful yeah, practices, yeah. just like in the days of, of, uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah. But yeah. um, I, uh, there is an article on the website, thetorah.com, thetorah.com, oh. and it asks the question, how Jewish was Herod? So that's what you can search for. And it says, despite the negative evaluation in, of Herod in traditional Jewish sources, archaeological evidence seems to suggest that with some notable exceptions, Herod saw himself as tied to the Jewish religion and tried, to a certain extent, to uphold its law, even in his own lifestyle. And then it gives background from there. So if you search for how Jewish was Herod, it'll take you to the Torah.com website, and you'll, you'll get an interesting perspective there. Hey, keep digging in your studies, Reggie. I appreciate the call, man. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Dalton in Louisiana. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Yes, sir. Hey. Out here, bush hog in the field. I, my question is, can we assume that the two olive trees that are spoken of in Revelation 11 are the same two olive trees uh, that are spoken of in Romans 11, where Apostle Paul says that, uh, you know, the, the Gentiles were grafted in amongst the Jews? Where do you get two trees, though, in Romans 11? Okay, so where I get two trees is, is it's a, a natural cultivated tree, okay, um, which is the Jews, and then right. he says that you uh, are a wild shoot. Right, so... So, so I assume that that is a, a second tree that has been grafted in among... Got it, but they're, they're gra- okay, but they're grafted into one tree, that's the, the key thing, right? Correct, that the, and, that, right. and that's what I had a problem with at the beginning, but, but then again, it, it is... Two separate trees that have become one. Right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's always good to look for, for imagery and, and to look at words that are used and things like that. Um, when it mentions the two olive trees and the two lampstands in, in uh, Revelation 11, could it mean Gentile and Jew? It's possible, but I, I would say clearly no, that the image is Zechariah 4. All right. Have you looked at Zechariah 4? You'd have to refresh me, but I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Well, that's where you want to go. Uh, when when okay. we get off the phone, go to Zechariah 4. I'll, I'll, I'll read it, though, for you. 
So uh, the angel who's speaking to me then returned, roused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I see a solid gold lampstand there with a bowl on its top. It has seven lamps on it, seven channels for each of the lamps on its top. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right, uh, the bowl, the other on the left. What are these, my Lord? He says, don't you know? I don't. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength, not by might, etc. You know all of that. So it's the word to Zerubbabel. And then verse 11, what are the two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? What are the two olive branches? He questioned, don't you know? No, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth, which you could argue would have been Zerubbabel, the governor, so in the royal line of David, and Joshua, Yeshua, the high priest uh, in in the line of Aaron, which then symbolizes the, the twofold ministry of the Messiah, priest and king. But if you have an image of, of two olive trees, remember, Dalton, that the book of Revelation is constantly drawing from Old Testament imagery. Um, I, I, my numbers may be off, but if I'm remembering right there, like 404 verses in the book of Revelation, someone have to check, 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and something like 270 make reference to or are allusions to Old Testament texts. There's only one direct quote that's from Psalm 2, that the Messiah will rule with a rod of iron and shatter the rebellious nations to pieces. There's only one quotation, but otherwise there are uh, allusions, constant references to images, and that would be what Revelation is drawing on, not Romans 11. Oh, it's a great observation, but rather the two olive trees, the two anointed ones of Zechariah 4, which then take on a certain new meaning in the book of Revelation. Hey, friends, we are out of time, but let us seize this moment, press into God, and who knows what's coming next. 